Benjamin B. Warfield, better known as B.B. Warfield, was a world-renowned theologian who taught at Princeton Seminary for almost 34 years until his death on February 16, 1921. Many people are aware of his famous books, like The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. But what most people don't know is perhaps uh, what I think is maybe the, the greatest part of Warfield. Warfield married his sweetheart Annie in 1876, and on their honeymoon, while walking together through the Harz Mountains in Germany, they found themselves caught in a terrible thunderstorm, where an Annie was struck by lightning. This was an event from which she would never fully recover. She was so severely traumatized that she would spend the rest of her life as an invalid of sorts, becoming more and more incapacitated over time. Yet the freshness of Warfield's vows didn't keep him from keeping them. He devoutly cared for Annie until her death in 1915. In fact, it was well known that Warfield would not accept speaking or traveling opportunities because he refused to be away from his, lo- his wife for too long. According to most accounts, Dr. Weir- Warfield almost never ventured away from her side for more than two hours at a time. What an excellent picture of headship. What a wonderful example of self-sacrificing, Christ-like love. The kind of love that husbands are called to exhibit towards their wives. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 again this morning, and today we are primarily addressing husbands. And so our focus is going to be on verses 25 through 30. The main idea is this. Marriage is a gospel drama. And the exhortation is, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's point one. And then point number two, husband, love your wives as your own body. Those are the two pictures that Paul gives us in this section, that of loving your wife as Christ loved the church and loving your wife as your own body. With that in mind, let's pray and ask for God's help and then uh, do some setup and get into the text. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together on the Lord's day. We pray that we would encourage one another with singing and thanksgiving and service. So we pray that you would help us to pursue that fullness of the Spirit, which is already in us. We pray that you would help us to recognize your presence among us and that we would encourage one another towards Christ's likeness. We pray, God, that you would help us to love you more as a consequence of being here this morning. We pray that you would speak through your word, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's quickly put our passage in context so we can set ourselves up to best understand Paul here. We've summarized Ephesians by saying it's easily broken into two halves, doctrine and devotion. The first three chapters, doctrine, teach us that God has chosen to adopt into his one family all who believe in Jesus. We who believe were once dead without any hope in the world, and God, not because of anything in us, but because of his great mercy and love, 
made us who are dead alive in Christ. The second three chapters, devotion, teach us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. And the idea is this. We who believe have been adopted into the family of God, doctrine, and now we are learning to live up to the family name, devotion. We who are in Christ have been born again, doctrine, and now we're learning to walk in love, devotion. And that verb, walk, is sprinkled throughout the book of Ephesians. We first come across it in chapter two when we are actually having our uh, dead state described to us. So we're told that we're dead in our sins and that we are walking according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, we are living and following uh, the devil. We're living like the devil and we're following him apart from Christ. Uh, then in the uh, verse 10 area of chapter 2, uh, where we come across it again, and we, we've gone from death to life. We've now been made alive in Christ, and we are told now that we are to walk in the good works that God has prepared in eternity past for us to walk in. Now, I should mention that walk is a Hebrew idiom uh, in, in Hebrew for, for living, And so we're told not to walk the old way, but to walk the new way. And Paul picks that up in the second half of Ephesians in verse 1 of chapter 4, where we're told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received. And then in verse 17, he says, don't walk like the Gentiles, don't walk like the world does in the futility of their minds, which are are darkened, but rather be renewed in your mind by the Spirit of God. Put off the old self and put on the new self. You have been made new. You have a new identity. And so now you need to have new actions that match. And and that theme continues in in verse two of chapter five, walk in love as Christ. We're told to walk in verse eight as children of the light, since we are no longer children of darkness. And I always love that in verse eight. It doesn't say that you were once in darkness and now you are in light. It says you were darkness. And now because of what God has done in you, you've come to believe in Christ. Now you are light. And then the last uh, occurrence of the verb walk comes in verse 15 of chapter five, where we are told to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And so we want to walk wisely. And that command kind of is draped over the rest of the book of Ephesians. And we're learning what that looks like in light of the coming judgment of God. And so we are immediately given these two explanatory commands, which kind of come underneath what it looks like to walk wise. We have verse 17, which says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then verse 18, be filled by or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so we talked last week about what it looks, I'm sorry, two weeks ago, about what it means to be filled with the Spirit or, or to pursue spiritfulness, right? We have the Spirit, and yet we still need to pursue uh, the control of the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit. And we do that, Paul tells us, by singing to God and to one another, 
by giving thanks together and by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We, we serve one another and all of these things, they happen in the corporate context, the context of corporate worship. And so we come together here to pursue the fullness of the spirit, to experience God, to encourage one another, to continue following Christ. And then Paul is going to turn his attention He's going to actually continue to talk about what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what he wants to make clear is that our service to one another out of reverence for Christ does not obviate or eliminate the order that God has written into human relationships. And so he's going to talk about marriage and family and work. And he's going to tell us, he's going to say, hey, wives, you need to submit to your husbands as Christ, I'm sorry, you need to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. He's going to call husbands to love their wives, laying their lives down for them as Christ did the church. And we're ultimately going to learn that the relationship between Jesus and the church is the pattern for how husbands and wives should relate to one another in marriage. In fact, marriage, we learn, is a picture, a drama of the gospel. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And he's going to continue on. He's going to tell children to submit to their parents and parents to love their children, care for their children, and then uh, employees to submit to, to obey their employers and for employers to care about their employees. And we're going to get to all that, but the focus uh, this week and last week and next week is going to be on the marital relationship. And so let me summarize what we talked about last week because the three sermons do fit together and and build on one another. We said we were going through the passage kind of Pulp Fiction style. We were gonna start at the end, which we did last week, and then talk to husbands and then uh, to wives before moving on to the relationship between parents and children. And so what we did last week was we took some time to define what marriage is and what marriage is for. And we said marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman for their marriage mutual joy, the good of society, and the procreation of children. And we said marriage is for the glory of God. Primarily not for my happiness or my satisfaction, but primarily for the glory of God. Marriage is a gospel drama patterned after and picturing Jesus' love for and union with the church. And so if we tear the commands that have been given here to husbands and wives, if we tear those commands away from their Christological foundation, we are not going to understand them at all. It's only in light of the relationship between Jesus and his church that these exhortations uh, will make sense to us. It's only uh, by the power of God's spirit that we're going to be able to walk wisely in obedience to these words. And so we're, we're going to pick up at verse 25, but it's important to make plain here that that Paul is speaking to husbands in the context of his belief is that they are the head of their wives. That metaphor signifies that the husband has authority over his wife. 
She, as verse 22 says, is to submit to his authority. And so now kind of the question is, that already throws us for a loop a little bit in our culture. That causes people to bristle and go, what? This is so backwards. But that wasn't the part that caused folks to bristle back then. The part that caused folks to bristle in the first century comes in verse 25 which tells us, well, how is it that the husband is to use this authority? And the expectation would be something along the lines of like, you know, like the Greeks or the Romans or other cultures, right? Use their authority however they want. Oppress, belittle, take advantage of his wife. I mean, it would have been far more likely for Paul at the time uh, when Ephesians was written to command husbands to domineer their wives (laughs) instead of what he actually writes, which is quite, quite incredible. He says this in, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a radical command. Men are never exhorted to love their wives in household codes outside of the New Testament. I mean, this was a command that went against the grain of the first century. Now, again, we're more accustomed to something like verse 25. And so we don't go, what? We go, what, in verse 22, but we'll get to that next week. But, but we, we read this, and we're kind of desensitized to the force and the fire of what is commanded here. Like, we, we quickly read over the words with a, a yawn and sort of a cheap sentimentalism. Nevertheless, the kind of love required of a husband for his wife is of infinite value and ought to cause our eyes to widen in shock as they look to Golgotha and Calvary. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We want to have a vision of how we are to care for our wives, men. Well, then we just have to take our eyes to Golgotha and Calvary. The standard of love which a husband is to apply to his wife is that of the cross and of the atonement. It is the atonement which informs the way that we are to love and care for our wives. We are to bleed for them. Let's try to look at this text with with fresh eyes. Husbands, love your wives. So first point, uh, husbands are called to love their own wives. The call is not to love every woman in the same way, but to love a specific woman in a special way. Husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loves his bride. Jesus' special, saving, exclusive love is exclusive to his people. And likewise, a husband's special romantic love ought to be, should be, is designed to be only for his wife. Husbands, this means that you ought to love your wife specially uniquely. She is the one who is to be utmost in your affections above all other persons. She's to be the partner of all your sexual experiences. The application is simple. Do not look at pornography. 
Do not get romantically involved with other women, whether emotionally or physically. Do not give someone else what belongs only to your wife. Drink from your own cistern. Be satisfied in your wife, not someone else's. Satisfy your wife. Nourish her and cherish her. Proverbs 5, 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Answer to the rhetorical question there, you shouldn't. You should be intoxicated by your wife. Love your wife and love her as Jesus loves the church, sacrificing for her good. Think of how Jesus laid down his life for us on the cross. Think of how he loved and served others throughout his ministry. Perhaps my favorite like pre-cross um, story of Jesus giving up himself for the good of others is the story of Lazarus. If you remember in John 11, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Jesus weeps at his tomb, quakes with rage at his death. And then uh, we read he's deeply moved. And he tells some guys there, take away the stone. Martha says, uh, Jesus, I don't think that's a great idea. Uh, you see, he's been dead four days and there's, it'll be a, there'll be a strong odor. And Jesus replies to her, did I not tell you? that you would see the glory of God. He says a quick prayer so everyone can hear. Lifts his eyes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And at once the man who is dead obeys and walks out of the tomb, kind of mummified and wrapped up. She's like, unwrap him and let him go. It's amazing. And then we read John 11, verse 45, right after. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 53. So from that day on, they, that's the religious leaders, made plans to put him to death. Jesus ends Lazarus' funeral at the expense of starting his own. Jesus knows that giving Lazarus life will cost him his own life. He knows that calling Lazarus out of the grave will put him into it. He knows that commanding Lazarus to come forth will lead to his coming to the cross. And yet, Jesus does it 
anyway. This is the love of Christ for us, church. We were dead in sin. No ability to make ourselves right with God. Deserving of hell. No hope. We were dead and we smelt like it. There was an odor and Jesus came to our tomb and said, This one is mine. Live. And he has spoken to each one of us, Come forth. He has said, Susan, come forth. Tim, come forth. Barbara, come forth. And we came to life. He saved us. Unbeliever, you can have your sins forgiven. You you can be freed from death and enjoy eternal life ultimately. You can be raised as Jesus has been raised. Hear his voice this morning. Come forth, unbeliever, from your sin and your death. Come forth, repent, and believe. Christian, Jesus loves you to the stars. He has loved you to the point of death on that old rugged cross. He loved you into the grave and out the other side. He lives. He is raised. We shall be Raised like him. How marvelous his love. How infinite his wisdom. How great his kindness for us. Husband, this is how you are to love your wife. Sacrificially. One commentator notes, loving like Christ means giving up your life even unto death. And until that is necessary, it means dying to what is easiest for you in countless little ways. Brothers, what sacrifices can you make to better love your wife? I mean, perhaps it's something simple, you know, turning down extra work or entertainment in order to spend more time with your wife. Maybe it's happily participating in an activity that you don't like, but she enjoys maybe, I don't know, like shopping or uh, watching what the the great British bake off or or something like that. You know, maybe, maybe it's more significant. Maybe it means giving up a lucrative job or adapting to a lower standard of living so so that you can be engaged with your family, so that she can stay home with children. I mean, it can look a lot of different ways. I think it's important to note, Paul doesn't explain exactly what sacrifices uh, look like or what he's calling for here in marriage. And I think that's intentional. Christ is the model, follow that. And there's going to be your, you're going to have your own unique challenges and sacrifices that, that are going to be made. It's not a paint by numbers deal here. Ultimately, the goal for husbands is that they would be devoted to their wives as Christ is to the church. Love what Douglas Wilson writes. As a husband must always remember that as a husband, He is a living picture of the Lord Jesus. This remembrance is his first duty in marriage. When husbands remember that they are 
to be playing the role of Christ and loving their wives as Christ does the church, uh, the what and the how of the sacrifice will become much easier. Much more obvious. A husband's leadership of his wife starts with love. He must sacrifice for her and he must love her. He must love her without condition. Did you notice that? The text doesn't say, love your wife if. Love your wife if she's perfectly submissive. Love your wife if uh, she seems as radiant to you today as she did on the first day. Love your wife if all your ducks are in a row and, and you feel like it. Love your wife if X, Y, and Z. It doesn't say that. There are no conditions. It says love your wife and to love her as Christ loved the church. This means your wife doesn't have to earn your love, doesn't have to earn your sacrificial love in any way. She must always have it, as Christ always gives his heart to the church. You must always give your heart to your wife. Your love for your wife isn't contingent upon her loveliness, but your promises to her. Just as Jesus' love for his people isn't contingent upon our loveliness, but his promise to love steadfastly. Husbands, love your wives sacrificially, unconditionally. As you do this, it is important to remember that when Jesus died, he wasn't just dying or sacrificing himself without reason. He was doing it to save his people from our sins. And so likewise, this isn't a call to like kind of say to your wife, hey, do you want to know how much I love you? Watch this. And then go and, and jump into traffic, right? I love you so much I would die for you. And then just, you know, oncoming bus or to, to jump off of a roof. That's not, that, that would be foolishness, right? Rather, this is a, a summons to sacrifice, to die to yourself for a reason so that your wife might gain and grow in holiness, you're to sacrifice for her good. Look at me at verse 26. Says, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her so that, verse 26, right, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus's sacrificial death and love have as their purpose the holiness of his people. Remember back in verse four of chapter one, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The language of sanctifying, cleansing, and washing in verse 26, it can be a little tough to unravel, but at bottom, it is about Jesus's preparation of the church for glory when he will present the church, his bride, to himself perfect. Now, one of the things that makes this difficult or puzzles interpreters is 
they want to argue over how Paul was using this word sanctify because it can be used in different ways, right? He could mean sanctify sort of in a positional sense, right? The church has been set apart by Jesus. Or he could mean sanctify in a progressive sense, as in the church is still becoming pure. I actually think it's both, right? Jesus has united himself with his church. We belong to him positionally, and Jesus is progressively making us more holy, more like himself. And this work will be complete only when he returns, when we die or when he returns and and we come to that great marriage supper of the Lamb. So the means, we see Jesus is making his made his people his own. He's making his people holy. And the means by which he does that, means by which he helps us to become and practice what we've been declared, is that he sanctifies his people by the word. It is the gospel heard and believed that brings dead people to life. And it is God's word applied to us by the spirit, which enables us to grow in holiness. And you're going, what's the What about this washing of the water with the word? So ultimately, it's the word that brings us to life. Hearing comes by faith. But I also think that this is an allusion to water baptism, which confirms the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And then also what might be in view is this idea of a traditional Jewish bridal bath wherein the bride purifies herself for the ceremony. And you can see a little bit of that if you want to. You can read it in Ezekiel chapter 16. For homework. At this point, we, we can see the picture though, right? A bride is being made ready for her wedding day. And Jesus is getting his church ready for that day when we all saw, shall see him face to face. He gave his life so that we might be united to him and made holy and blameless. Church, Jesus is at work in you right now. He has made you his own and he is working through other church members, your family, your circumstances and everything to make you more holy, make you more like him. So what is this this portion? The passage, verse 26 and 27, what does that have to do with husbands loving their wives? Husbands are to use their authority to lovingly lead their wives into Christ-likeness. Husbands, your wife's spiritual growth is part of your responsibility as her husband. Unfortunately, it is all too often the case that men abdicate this particular responsibility. Ligon Duncan comments, How often have you seen this spectacle in the course of your Christian life of a woman who is zealous to read the word, zealous to study the word, gathers often with other women to study the word, prays diligently for her children, and a husband who isn't even interested in going to church. A husband who has to be coaxed to come church. And the Apostle Paul is saying, Christian husbands, that's not the picture. 
You're the one who's supposed to be nourishing and cherishing and encouraging your wife's growth in grace. You're to take the lead. Your wife isn't supposed to have to drag you along. And so, so friend, if that is you, the answer is not for you to ask your wife to slow down, but to get yourself up to speed. Don't abdicate your role of being a spiritual leader for your wife and in your home. Brothers, if you are to love and lead your wives well, you must be passionate about Christ and about his word. And so here's the question. Is your wife more like Jesus because of you Or is she like Jesus in spite of you? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And husbands, love your wives as your own body. That's the second illustration that Paul uses to teach husbands how to love their wives. Look in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul's point is she is me. Imagine you were riding a bike downhill and you fell. What would you do? Both hands out, right? Trying to prevent injury. What would you do if you accidentally grabbed hold of a sizzling hot pan? Right? Pull back, you let go. And if you're hungry, well, you eat. Thirsty, find something to drink. If you smell terrible after days of not bathing, you know, you take, do the sniff test, no, you're good for another day or two. But eventually, eventually, uh, you take a shower, you clean yourself up. And this is Paul's point. We naturally take care of ourselves. He's saying, husbands, you naturally take care of yourself, which you should. But once you become married, naturally taking care of yourself extends to your whole body. And when you got married, your body got bigger. And I don't mean that you just put on a few pounds. I mean that you put on another person. You'll recall the Genesis passage from last week in verse 31, which we just read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, glued together. They're fitted together. Husbands, to take care of your wife is to take care of your body. That's what Paul is saying, and his logic is quite simple. When a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage, they make public promises to one another. In our culture, they exchange rings, but then they seal the marriage with their sexual union. And their sexual union is meant to portray a spiritual reality that the two are made one. Therefore, if you are married, to love your wife is to love your own body, to love your own self. It's incredible, isn't it? Appreciated 
comment Vodi Bakum made on this section of scripture. He said this, we must give ourselves to and for our wives. We must view them not only as ours, but as us. As I often remind myself concerning my wife, she's not just mine, she's me. She's bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's my body and I am her head. We are one. She is me. This is what Paul wants you to understand, husband. Your wife is you and you are responsible for loving her, leading her and caring for her. Specifically, you are to nourish and cherish your wife as Christ does the church. And before we unpack what nourishing and cherishing entail, we need to stop and recognize again the relationship between Christ and the church is the pattern, right? The union of husband and wife pictures the union of Christ and the church. This means that we who are in Christ are one with him. And again, that's something we kind of are desensitized to. We hear it throughout scripture. We are the body of Christ. But this truth is, is, a, is a true one, right? I always I think of when Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul's been persecuting Christians, but he hasn't done anything to Jesus physically. Nevertheless, Jesus says to him, why do you persecute me? The church is the body of Christ. He, he cares for us. Brothers and sisters, how scandalous is it that Jesus has made us his body? How incredible is it that he nourishes and cherishes us? But what does it mean for a husband to nourish and cherish his wife? These two words, nourish and cherish, are straight out of the nursery, actually, and charged with affection. Honer comments, The first word means to bring up from childhood, rear up. And in some cases, it was used to refer to nursing a child. In the New Testament, it is used only here and in verse 4 of chapter 6, where it refers to fathers rearing their children. Similarly, it here has the connotation of nurturing. Really, simply, the word means to provide for, care for, to, to bring to maturity. The word cherish means literally to heat, metaphorically with regards to passion, to inflame, but but also to comfort, to cherish, to warm. One commentator pointed out that it would have been used to describe the way a mother bird broods over her nests and warms her eggs. (laughs) So to nourish and to cherish one's body is to provide for it, to care for it with a tender, warm love. And in this husband is what Paul is enjoining upon you. Husbands are to provide for, care for, and lovingly cherish their wives. This is going to show up again practically in a variety of ways, and it's going to look different in different marriages and different situations. I do think, however, some things will be the same because our nourishing and our cherishing ought to be modeled after Christ's nourishing and cherishing of the church. And so one of the things I tried to do is thinking about this was, well, how does Jesus nurture and cherish us? And so I came up with a, a few things. Jesus gives us what we need. He keeps his word. He tells us of his love. He has sacrificed for our good. 
He leads us into greater and greater holiness. He listens to us in prayer. Okay, that's pretty simple. Husbands should give their wives what they need. That entails providing for them materially and spiritually. It means we should keep our word to our wives. Tell our wives that we love them. Sacrifice for their good and lead them to greater and greater holiness like we talked about earlier. We should listen to our wives. Brothers, you are indeed the head of your wife. You know, the ruling authority in your relationship. But this is never an excuse for not listening to your wife. It should be your endeavor to communicate with your wife and to consider her best interests when making any decision, especially when you disagree. Brother, listen. Dr. Marita sums it up well. Just as you long for intimacy, joy, security, health, peace, companionship, and community, provide them also for your bride. Husbands, I hope that this passage makes clear to you that your headship is not hostile, that your authority is for blessing and not curse. The opposite of biblical headship is husbands abusing their wives, husbands being harsh with their wives. De Young's quip is quite poignant. You should just as easily treat your wife harshly, he says, as you should punch yourself in the face. Calvin is even more on point. The man who does not love his wife, he says, is a monster. Unfortunately, we don't have to do too much research to find monsters pretending to be men. There are plenty throughout our culture. We see them at various points throughout Scripture. Perhaps the most horrendous account in the Bible comes to us in Judges 19. It's been a long time since we worked through Judges, so allow me to remind you of of this story. There's no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And onto the stage come the traveling Levite and his concubine. And the story starts, the concubine, who's functioning like a wife, uh, an extra wife, he's a Levite, uh, she is unfaithful, and so she goes out of his house and goes to stay with her father. The Levite, after four months, decides he wants her back, and so he goes to, quote, speak kindly to her and to bring her back. And so he goes, and he decides that uh, with her father, he's going to bring her back. They eat and drink, and they enjoy some great and wonderful hospitality, but it comes time for them to return home. And so they begin their journey, and they realize they're not going to make it all in one shot, and they're going to have to uh, take a night and stay somewhere. And so they want to make sure that they get to an Israelite city because they assume that will be the safest place to stay. And so they get to an Israelite city, but no Israelites will offer them hospitality. This outsider offers them hospitality eventually. And, and the old man says to them these ominous words, you know, so yeah, stay with me, just don't stay in the square. And that kind of, you know, our ears go up a little bit. Go, okay, something is off here. And this is what we read. They're, they're traveling, they're staying with the old man. And we come to verse 22 of Judges 19. While they were enjoying themselves, All of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to one of the old men who was the owner of the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went out and said to them, Please, 
Don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Do not commit this horrible outrage. Here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Abuse them. Do whatever you want to them, but don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him. And so the man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back, and as it was getting light, she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. When her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house, and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. Get up, he told her. Let's go. But there was no response. The Levite is headed on his way and his concubine is left grasping for the security that should have been on the other side of the threshold. The security and love and warmth offered by home and husband. And yet all she finds in her grasp is death. The Levite decides to become angry. He takes her body home and cuts it into pieces and sends it all across Israel to pursue some sort of insufficient justice. The spiritual state of God's people at this point is as bad as it was at Sodom, as it was at Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the point. One of the things you'll notice about this biblical example of cultural degeneration As men acting like monsters. Husbands, we have been entrusted with authority over our wives. We are responsible for loving our wives, leading our wives, nourishing and cherishing our wives. We must not be monsters as the Levite of Judges 19, serving ourselves at the expense of our brides. Rather, we must be as Jesus, He would never cower behind a door offering up his bride to destructive forces outside, but rather who offers himself so that his bride can live. We must never be as the Levite chopping up his bride into pieces, trying to pursue some kind of insufficient justice Rather, we need to be as Jesus, who was himself torn apart on the cross for the sins of his people, his church. Marriage is a gospel drama. Husbands, your headship is for honoring your wives. Love your wives as Jesus loved the church and gave his life for her. Love your wives as your own bodies. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would make our church centered on the gospel and that the marriages within our church would accurately portray the relationship between Christ and us. We thank you that you've united us to Jesus by faith, that indeed we are his body. We pray that you would make the men among us the kind of men who honor women. We pray that you would make the husbands among us the kind of men that you've called us to be in these verses. That we would be great lovers of our wives. That we would have marriages which are countercultural and compelling. That people would be able to see, whether they know it or not, a little bit of the gospel in us. We thank you for your kindness to us, God. You are great. Only you are great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.